0: Thank you for joining us again here at Homeland the Podcast. And if you just found us, welcome. My name is Frank Foreman. I'm the host of this podcast and chapter lead for the Naval Postgraduate Schools Center for Homeland Defense and Security, Southern California Regional Alumni Chapter. Our mission is to bring you yesterday's pioneers today's leaders, and tomorrow's visionaries within the realm of Homeland Security. We're taking a slightly different approach on this episode and a couple others we're putting together. This series is going to focus on you, the Homeland Security Practitioner. In your efforts to take care of this country and its people, one important person is often overlooked, you. Today's show addresses cyber hygiene and what you can do to protect yourself, your family, and the work you do. We recorded this episode during the 2018 Apex Workshop. So, for those of you who couldn't make it, we have it for you. We're joined by Philip Osborne, CHDS alumni from 0701 0702. Philip retired from Homeland Security Investigations within ICE as a supervisory special agent, and today he's an adjunct professor addressing cybersecurity. Philip spent nearly 20 years working on cyber crimes and shares some simple steps to improve your security while operating in an insecure cyber environment. So with that, let's welcome Mr. Philip Osborne. Okay, today we are speaking
1: with Philip Osborne, and well, actually, why don't we just start with you, Philip? Philip, would you just tell me a little bit about who you are? I am a retired senior special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, Uh, spent about 36 years in law enforcement. Coast Guard, Customs, Border Patrol, finally uh, ended up as a Supervisor Special Agent with Homeland Security Investigation, which is part of ICE. What type of work did you do there? Uh, for first 15 years of my career, I spent in Marine law enforcement, and the last uh, 20 or so in uh, cyber crimes. So cyber crimes, and that's why we're here talking today, because it's an area that I know very little about,
0: but it impacts every person in this country and actually around the world. So you, as being the subject matter expert in this area... I had a few questions for you today, and
1: if we can go through those, that would be really great. There's threats that are out there in the cyber world, and there's uh, the emerging threats that we're sort of looking at that are, they're out there, but they're not mainstream yet, but they're becoming more mainstream. Okay, so I know there's uh, terms like uh, ransomware, and then
0: there's Trojan horses and bots, and actually I try to stay with the Mac computer, all my Mac operating systems, and I opened my computer one time, and a thing popped up
1: and said, you've been hacked, and I just closed it as fast as I could. Call called Scareware, and it'll pop up telling you that, oh, you've been infected, and it directs you to go to their website to download some kind of antivirus software, which you should never do because a lot of times when, when you actually follow the direction to, to clean up this mess, um, it actually installs malware on your computer, which will actually do something bad. And there's a lot of different types of threats that are out there. The big one being right now is probably people hear about ransomware. In the preface, most of these threats that I'm going to talk about, the number one way that people are infected is by clicking on the wrong thing in an email attachment. Spamware, malware, which is malware meaning bad software, the number one way still that people get it on their computer is that they get sent an email from somebody that they either don't know or somebody who looks familiar to them, right? An email crafted for you with an attachment or a link in it and you click on that link and then you're done. Then you'll download the software, or you'll go to a site that will download the software, and then your computer's encrypted. Then you have to send them uh, you know, $300 in bitcoins to get your, your, get your data back or unlocked. A variation of that now and on the horizon is, and it's there now, but it, they're probably gonna see more of it um, for malicious people that don't really want money, is they just want to attack you, let's say in an organization. So they'll send you a ransomware which will encrypt your computer, but you'll never be able to get the, the uh, unlocked code. That unlock code, they call that wiperware, because essentially when you when your data is encrypted and you can't unencrypt it, it's useless to you. So it's basically as if they had destroyed it. So with that,
0: I can understand the concept of ransomware and why uh, somebody would send it to an individual, to a business, to a government entity in the hopes of making money. Why would somebody do the wiperware? when they're not getting any
1: money for it. It's all about motivations of who the attackers are. So a terrorist who might not necessarily want to make money off of this thing, their aim is to disrupt Cause confusion to damage your system. A lot of uh, they find that a lot of, especially state and local, a lot of the attacks on them uh, have been through uh, website defacement, where somebody will go in there and hack the an organization's website, and uh, we've seen it where they'll put up like ISIS banners and things like that, pages you know promoting ISIS. Somebody would do wiperware. Somebody who would want to destroy your data. Somebody whose their intention is to actually just do damage. Their, their motivation—they're not a—they could be all well, they're a criminal, but their motivation isn't like monetary. Their motivation is actually to damage and disrupt. When we talk about cybersecurity, we talk about a triad, right? confidentiality, integrity, and the availability of not just the information systems that you're using, but the data which resides in those systems. I can't think of any organization which would profit or do well if important databases that they have of customers, of, of emergency people, you, you name it, that became encrypted and was unavailable to them. Yeah, I, I, could, I could see that. It'd be
0: really difficult. Say you're an individual's trying to write a big paper, and all of a sudden, they have wiperware. Or ransomware and now you've got 80 pages of work that you can't get access to all your thesis yes it's, it's really that's what problem. i was thinking of <laughs> um oh that's that's interesting so uh, i i see that there's the businesses can do certain things take care of themselves the the uh, individual can do certain things take care of themselves and and what it sounds like the number one thing
1: is know what you're clicking on I said, awareness i know in my other life i'm an instructor for texas a in cybersecurity. one of the main things we actually push is awareness and awareness for everybody, because what well, you find out, and um, I've discussed with people when they don't realize it, is that, well, but maybe you do realize it, more people are taking their work home with them, right? And they have access to their information systems at work from home. So for either for, for working from home directly or for just after work, they've got, everybody's got work they got to do after work. Well. The things that you do at home end up impacting stuff that happens at work because it can migrate from your home (laughs) systems to your work systems. So we really push awareness, awareness of what the threats are. Um, most people don 't know that I mean a lot they should know by now not to click on things, know before you click kind of thing, but it 's getting more and more difficult because the the hackers and the criminals are you know where there was phishing where it was just like a you know spam email sent out to thousands of people, hoping that one of them will click on it, thinking that it is their bank asking them to reset their password now you 're getting email, which is actually. Specifically targeted to you, they'll take information from people that you know using their email address, asking for something. So, when if you don't look at them very closely, you'll see that there's, um, you know, that this is actually not your friend, but you know, the email address looks like it might be somebody in Russia or China or, or North Korea. So, awareness, just knowing what the threats are out there. When you're talking about awareness at an organizational level, you probably need to be more aware than maybe on a personal level. But I think even then, as I said before, a lot of stuff that people are doing home ends up migrating to work. So what are some measures if you're
0: working at home or at work? What are some basic, simple things that somebody can do to just improve their security. And I, I know that we talk complex passwords, but is there something we could do really passwords or our usernames or something like that?
1: You know, that's actually, uh, when it's funny you talk about passwords because there's the, you know, originally everybody thought, you know, long, complex passwords, you change all the time. Come to find out, everybody's thought where that came from is that that wasn't really well thought out. When somebody had to come up with a, it was almost on the fly years ago. It's okay, we should, you should have long, complex passwords over a certain number of characters with mixed in characters. They're finding out that that's actually detrimental because people with long, complex passwords will immediately, first thing they do is going to write it down, right? right. They're going to do all, and they're going to forget their password and things like that. So now they're coming up with the idea that forget about long, complex passwords, just have like a phrase. A long phrase that you that you can remember, things like that, or they go into two pa, you know two-factor authentication where you have you know something you have and maybe a pin code that you remember, kind of like your ATM card. But when we talk about prevention of this stuff, we talk about having you know practicing good cyber hygiene. And this is not only on the personal level, but it's on the organizational level, right? You should always keep your systems up to date, right? And whenever there's an update for Windows, you should immediately you should immediately patch that. On an organizational level, most of the patching on systems. Is going to be up to the you know, information officers because patching can be dangerous on an organizational level because sometimes patches don't work well with some of the equipment you have. But that's in the realm of the, of the information officers and the, you know, your AIT people. They know that a system should be updated as soon as it's safely possible at home. And when updates come, you should always update your, your operating systems and, and any kind of software you're using. If you have 100 different software programs in your computer, that's a hundred programs you have to make sure up to date, because there are vulnerabilities in even you know, something like is Adobe, which mm-hmm. could end up being an in-route for somebody to take over your entire system. So you need to update your computer and all the software on your computer whenever there's an update available. Updates become available when people find out that there's a, a, a mistake or an error in the software that causes the thing not to work right. But there's also updates when people identify security vulnerabilities. So, the, so you want to make sure that you're updated because they're updating for a reason. Also, you need to make sure that you back up your data. Anything that's important. You don't have to back up the entire operating system. But obviously, all your documents, all of your Excel spreadsheets, anything that, that's actually the data that you have needs to be backed up. And you should, because when you get hit with a Wiperware, there is no going back. If your data is the only place it resides is on your hard drive of your computer, it's gone forever. You're not going to be able to get it back. Updating, patching, we call it good cyber hygiene. And obviously, you should be running some type of a virus scan software, right? Something that will scan attachments in your email, something that will monitor your operating system for changes and for malware, that might get on your computer, uh, and make sure that that's up to date, because those are updated daily. A lot of viruses, which basically are the same virus, a lot of times in viruses, all they have to do is change one little thing in it, and it's basically the same virus, except now it won't be picked up by the virus scan software right, until right. somebody actually sees it and adds that signature, they call it, of that virus to that database that it runs against. So all I can tell you is update, update, update backup, 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 and make sure that you know that you got your virus scan software. Nothing's going to be 100% uh, vulnerabilities, which are basically vulnerabilities that hackers Some good and some bad will identify in a piece of software which allows that software to be used as an attack vector to get into your computer. Those things aren't, they call it, it's not out in the wild. Zero day means that the first day that it shows up is, okay, it's like here's the zero day. It hasn't shown up yet, and then all of a sudden it shows up in the wild. Now it's out there infecting people. And it's gonna take a while. There's a lag between the time that a virus actually shows up in the wild and it actually gets identified and it gets put into your virus scan database so that it looks for it. So you gotta keep that up to date. Nothing is 100%, but um, believe me, the, uh, the chances that if you aren't running virus scan and you're not patching, are on an order of magnitude I can't explain. I've seen computers that were unpatched that had never been turned on before, that just were sitting in a box someplace that, that had just arrived. You know, your typical government uh, supply chain, it's a year late. We turned the computer on, and within, I would say, within five minutes, the computer had already been identified by one of these botnets out there as a computer which had been unpatched and didn't have the updated operating system and it had already been taken over and was used, being used as a bot itself to attack other computers. And, it took, and I'm saying five minutes, it could have been five seconds. It was between the time somebody turned it on and called me up and said, hey, there's something, come over and take this computer, the, the hard drive is going 100 miles an hour. So I walked over there and looked at it and it, the computer was actively attacking other computers on the internet already. So everything is truly interconnected. Oh, yes. Is there any threat to attack through the cloud, cloud-based systems? Right now, the the cloud is everything. I mean, if you hear the cloud mentioned all the time. It's being adopted because of uh, there's redundancy in the cloud. There's savings in the cloud. You don't have to maintain the the uh, the uh, the hardware yourself and things like that. And, and theoretically, hopefully, the the cloud is backing up, right? But one of the fears is, when we talked about those these emerging threats, is the technology for the cloud and the use of the cloud is expanding faster than the expertise on the security side for the cloud. So, if you're in the information security world, you probably already know. Already, you're getting you're getting um, advertisements for training. For cloud security. Well, if something is so secure, why is there so much training for it? So there's obviously vulnerabilities there. And remember I told you about the zero-day threats? We right. don't know what we don't know. Right. Okay. So now one of the emerging threats is, is that they're worried that the cloud is going to be the next big target because, the, like I said, the security expertise has outpaced the expansion of the use of the cloud and of the technology in the cloud. For example, two fairly well-advertised threats that have come out recently in the last month or two, one of them, they believe specifically targets aspects of the cloud. It's not like is is uh, universally thought of as is um, secure like a virtual private network or something right. like that. But the cloud is out there, and the and just to let you know that there are emerging threats on the cloud. Now, somebody who's a cloud security person might say, "Well, you know, I'm you know I'm uh, chicken little." But the but the thing is, that after 20 years working in, in the cybersecurity and cyber investigation realm nothing surprises me and one last thing about patching and updating and I, one caveat is you update you update you update just make sure that when you get an alert that there's an update that you're not getting an alert for an update from a hacker <laughs> if it's an alert by email or something like that um, it's probably about, because believe me that you know the criminals are devious and hackers are devious and they will send people a notification saying hey there's an update you need to update your system And just make sure that that update doesn't have, like, the at the end of the email address, .ru for Russia or something like that. That actually, you were talking about updating our software. How about applications on our
0: phones and applications on our tablet? are those important to also update
1: is oh, yeah. there security is it accessed into your into your personal your phone is an internet device right most people probably use their phone as an internet device more than they sit at their computer unless right. they are uh, so I do. on a data, yeah then most of us do so i would definitely say you got you have to update your applications now like a like something like a Google store or you know where you in that that was the the only thing i could tell you like i said nothing's 100% right developers can get fooled mm-hmm. right and maybe google can fool but the chances that you're going to get malware from a download from an organization like Google that supposedly hopefully is looking at that stuff are much less than if you download that from someplace that you don't know, right? Right. So that would be the only caveat. I would say you've got to update your software because if you don't, the vulnerabilities are out there and somebody will use that vulnerability to get in the rest of your system. And especially now, a lot of people, they they sync up their, their handhelds with their computer at home, Right. Nobody would do that, right? So oh, no, so, not so, at all. <laughs> so you, you can ha- a virus can migrate from your handheld to your home right. device, right? So you want to make sure that there, that any application is updated. One of the mantras we have, like in information security, and is uh, you know less is more, right? Right. The fewer applications you have on your computer, the less. And that maybe goes back to cyber hygiene. If you've got a program on your computer that you haven't used in two years, right, and then you've got this. It's just, it's sitting there, and whether you think it's on or not, it's probably on the internet listening for updates or it's listening for something. Right? You'd never know unless you're you, you knew some networking and would actually go in there and look and see what your computer, what ports are open and things like that. Every piece of software you have in your computer is a potential door. I guess a good analogy would be you have a secure room, but every time you add a new program into it, you put another window. And when you have windows, you have to make sure, you know, especially what neighborhood you live in, right? And the cyber neighborhood is actually pretty dangerous. You got to make sure that the door is locked. Maybe it's got, uh, you know, sensors on it when somebody's trying to bang at the door and get in and things like that. So think of every time you put a piece of software on any device you have, you've put another window that somebody can get in. That's, and you have to block that window, right? You I have like to protect that, analogy. that window. Yeah. So the, and the thing is, if I want to have a secure house, probably less windows, mm-hmm. Right, so so the uh, we always say that if you if you should probably only have on your device at home. This is probably more from you know speak from a government perspective, is that you only have the software on there you need to do your job. Everything else is something you got to worry about is either potential threat, something that you have to update, something that you have to patch, something that, and then of course something that might have a zero day vulnerability in it that nobody knows about until it hits you. I would say, you know, patch and update all of your software on all of your devices at home. Make sure that those are actually coming from, some, from a reputable source. But if you don't need it, get rid of it. Your device will probably run better without the software on there. Every once in a while, you know, good server hygiene is you have to clean house every once in a while. And if you don't need it, that all it is is just another window that somebody can get into your house. I... Appreciate that answer, because that uh, <clears throat> just recognized
0: some areas that I might need to improve upon. Okay. That's I got something right now. You'd mentioned how some of us, and I might be guilty of this, is my iPhone connected to my iPad, to my Mac. and Everything's interconnected. But on that internet interconnectivity, that also leads me into the Internet of Things and the access that other people may have into your own home through the Internet of Things. Do you have any safety measures we could take on that?
1: I know but the big the uh, the big people things always people worrying about your your uh, TV spying on you you know if you have a Samsung TV it's got cameras built into it and things like that I'm not saying that I've never actually encountered anything like that has happened if somebody was like spying on me they'd just see how much beer I drink maybe <laughs> during the games but uh, maybe too much <laughs> if there is such a thing but yeah there's the IoT is another thing the Internet of Things is uh, is because it is a vulnerability out there most in the the vulnerability with Internet of Things devices first off there's millions and millions of them. You know, you never know what's going to pop up on the radar screen. A recent vulnerability showed up. It was sort of a worm virus which actually targets the processing chip, which is on the the second most popular processing chip, which is in Internet of Things devices. So potentially this this worm can actually seek out and find these devices and turn them into part of a botnet. And if you don't know what botnets are, botnet is a robotic, remote-controlled network of computers which have been turned into zombies which can be controlled remotely by a bad guy and used to attack something. Probably in the most common uh, thing is what's called a distributed denial of service attack, where all these devices will try to send requests for access or to a website or things like that. And it basically overpowers the ability of that website or that whatever that internet service is to be able to respond to that many people. Remember I told you availability is right. one of the triad of, of internet security. If I can clog up somebody's service with requests for uh, service from 20,000 or 50,000 or a million internet cameras, right? I've effectively made it unavailable to anybody else, almost like I shut it off for all the legitimate users. I mentioned cameras because of internet of things devices, the most common device, which is actually taken over by the internet and turned into one of these botnets, Of internet devices, Internet of Things devices, are cameras. In 2014, I saw statistics. They they figured there was something on the order of a quarter of a billion, closed circuit cameras in the world, and there's more now. And that's only cameras which were professionally installed. That is not. That doesn't include, as far as I know, it doesn't include cameras that everybody buys at Costco or Sam's or at some retailer that they can stick around their house. Those are all internet, they all have IP addresses, They're, they become part of the internet of things. And the main thing is, and this is, probably goes back to cyber hygiene on the personal and organizational levels, the reason that they are vulnerable is that there are automated, almost robotic scanners out there for, these, for botnets, which actually look for them. And they all have, one thing in common that they have, the ones that are taken over and become part of the botnets, is that they all still have, and I'm talking on the order of millions still have the default username and the default password from, that, that are set. The hackers and the, you know, the criminals know this, so when they scan a network, it's easy to identify the camera, and it's easy to identify it to run the you know, Very quickly, they run the admin password and, and username against There's a, a database I think I saw it was about 50. Uh, usernames and, and, and admin passwords, which were defaults, and as soon as they have one, they, ha- they can take over the camera, actually turn it into part of the botnet, which actually scans the rest of the internet for other cameras, <laughs> right? So the so the, when I get back to cyber hygiene, another thing, uh, including backing up, obviously, like I said, and uh, updating your software, is make sure that you change the default password on every device you have everything that you buy especially one of the big things was obviously be cameras stuff with the one of the things that is is that people they may or may not think about is the router you get and not just the router you buy for your home router but a lot of times the cable company has a router they give you and a lot of the routers now that you're getting from like Comcast they have built built built-in wireless in them as well so just on a personal level, I actually disabled the wireless on the router that I get from Comcast. And I take, so that I'm not even, I'm not using that, nobody can just drive by my neighborhood and get on that for, with a user default password, and I also change, obviously changed the default username and password on the router that I bought, that I plugged into right. their router, so, you know, so that I can, so that I'm not out there. One of the um, Internet of Think devices also, which is another one that's popular being taken over, is your home router. Because people don't change the default username and password, um, if just by changing the default username and password, you're eliminating a lot of the issues with the Internet of, of Things. Not them all. Not all. Like I said, I don't know what I don't know. But right now, that's the number one attack attack vector for that is people actually just co-opting cameras because they have a, and, and routers because they're, the people haven't changed the default username and password. If they've had it in service say a year or or two months or even a day.
0: Access to that could have already been compromised uh, from from one of the uh, bots. If they went back now, change the password, change the username. Does it solve the problem? Are they going to be continue to be infected, or is there a way that they can be clean?
1: Hmm, interesting question. I would probably. If there's 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 firmware and software updates. I would think that, I mean, obviously, I would change the username and password. Some of these the internet, actually, it's, it's interesting, some of the internet of things devices, especially cameras, I'm sure I'm pretty, routers work the same way, is that if you shut the camera off and turn it back on, it kills the remote control, that the, the access that the hacker has to it. However, if it, you don't change the username and password, the camera will be re, immediately reinfected. Because it's part of the botnet, the botnet knows to look for it, so it goes and accesses the camera. So they, they said that if you shut the cameras off and then turn back on, it won't be part of the botnet. But if that username and password remain, then it's then it's not. It, it, it actually the, these botnets, Internet Things, it actually will attack the uh, this pared down Linux operating system that a lot of them have. But I think changing the username and password is that's that's the golden rule when it comes to these things. People don't realize it. There are devices that they may have at their house that have been infected by three and four different, maybe more, uh, multiple, multiple hackers. And that device might actually be part of multiple, multiple botnets by different criminal groups or different hacking groups. It's it's interesting. It's actually called multi-tenant botnet, right? (laughs) Your device at home has actually got five and six, seven, who knows how many um, hackers have actually accessed it, and it's part of their botnet. Right. So and it's interesting enough that one of the new var- varieties of uh, of uh, malware, which is out there, that actually, you know, that that infects Internet of Things devices actually goes in and removes the other bad guy software. And removes and removes the and removes the, uh, the ability for them to access your device, so that they have it all to themselves. So I don't know, they're not being good. Net, uh, say it's not good being not a good netizen. It's just, but that, that there's no there's uh, no honor among thieves. I guess. Right. That they want they want it all to use. Well, they're themselves. They're helping you out. They're getting rid of a lot of the bad guys. Yeah, just and they're just, just going to be the only so, bad guy in your
0: system. So. Uh, that helps i and, and i don 't know if it, if it matters uh, when you shut it off, should you change the username and password prior to shutting it off
1: or after i don 't know i' I'll probably would I probably would uh, do both How about that okay. i think I think some of these things, some of these questions it 's probably it 's on the hardware level. I would actually call up the help desk okay. for the device because like i said i don 't know i don 't know every every piece of hardware and every procedure. Some of it might be in the firmware, some of it might be if there 's actually software and an operating system on there which has been infected. And, and how it's cleaned it i think that's a, a those are questions better left up to the um you know to the help desk for that device right because they probably have got, at this point they probably have gotten those calls before well then, that that's that that gives
0: us a great place actually now i have a good understanding of the things that may threaten me in my own home but also uh, some simple measures of cyber hygiene of changing the username password shutting the system down and then calling the company they you're right they they have had to have these calls in the past so as it goes for the, uh, you had mentioned about Samsung and the the potential uh, impact or people are concerned that the cameras are watching them. Um, what about systems like uh, Alexis? I mean, do we have to concern about
1: changing a name to Alexi? I don't know. I think actually I've got one myself and it's, uh, most people will joke and say, well, they can spy on me all they want if they want to listen to my meaningless banter, yeah. right, asking, uh, most of the time, I'm I, my Alexa, like, how tall is Mount Everest, right. or something <laughs> like that, questions like that, but, uh, I mean, they're, they're, obviously, there's security issues there, if they were spying on you, I mean, for instance, most people don't know, you can, I just found this out the other day, as a lark to try to play with it, was actually, when I was flying out here, I actually said, I asked Alexa to check on the status of my flight. Right? And, it, and it told me, oh, your flight is on time. And, it, and I said, wow, I didn't know that it could just look up the flight number. Mm-hmm. Well, if somebody had access to that, now they know that I'm out of town. Right, right. Right, things like that. So, I mean, it, you're getting a little cloak and dagger and things like sure. that. But you never know. I mean, it, it, it's only, it's only um, crazy until it happens. I don't know. I mean, those devices are, that's one of those things that people, you know, the whole idea about Google spying on you and every everything. You At some point, I think you have to. You have to take you, uh, your responsibility for you know what you you know, you've got a device there. Is anything in the world free? No, I mean so everything is being. I mean most people don't know that the you know the car companies, um, all of your your um, your connected devices in your car and in your GPS. Even though you tell it to turn tracking off and turn everything off, it's still tracking you because they want. And these companies are actually selling the information about your where you're driving if you're at a certain store for for a marketing purposes and things like that. So there's um there's always some responsibility that i mean if if i I, it's it's kind of a a joking aside but if i was a criminal i wouldn't like be running alexa hey what's the price of cocaine this week so (laughs) i can know what to charge people or something like that i don't know i mean that's that's something that uh i hear people talk about it i mean I think most most of the spying that's going on at Alexa is um, you know the the company themselves Amazon maybe are are using information you're saying as marketing right um, but as far as it, is it a device which is um, potentially vulnerable to hacker and they could listen probably yes anything which is touching the internet which obviously Alexa is right is vulnerable. Anything that touches the internet is vulnerable. So it's got an IP address. It's connected to your devices at home. If I was to scan your um, device, and because and th- it's such a new thing for me playing around with it, um, uh, if I was to scan a, a, my network from outside to see what it would see... If I could get if my if my firewalls would let would go in there and say okay yeah Alexa all Alexa's listen on a certain port so right. it, it's it's a piece of software it's a device which is connected to the internet as far as I know it probably is a vulnerable to something and, and if it's if it's touching the internet then hackers could potentially listen to what you're saying yes I mean so, so I would say yes I would say yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't be I wouldn't be re, I wouldn't be rattling off my um, credit card numbers in front of it and stuff right. like that in uh, in codes and things because. I wouldn't be surprised what you read in the news. Right. So I I sort of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. But the reason I I sort of
0: wanted to go that route is we talked about what we could do on on a lot of our cyber hygiene. But because we're becoming so more interconnected, it sort of goes back to a security freedom thing. So do you want more security? Do you want more freedom? And and back and forth. So if you want to engage in the positive aspects of technology, you're going to have to be willing to risk access into your personal life either from somebody monitoring you for marketing purposes or for some type of deviant uh um, some deviant aspect so that's been great i appreciate it so i think the key takeaways at least for me on this one is software updates and that include and hardware and that includes my applications on my phone uh to change the username and passwords and it doesn't need to be too complex but something a phrase or something and that's what i do for my longer ones is a phrase in my head and then uh don't click on things that you don't know where they're coming from.
1: That's good. Right, right. Yeah. About the password thing, real quick. Is that, you know, sometimes you might not have a choice because a lot of organizations they're they've got a password policy, right? So right. it has to meet the thing. What I'm just saying is that, that when I mentioned that was that was the the mantra is going now that you know that they were wrong about that because it mm-hmm. just you know complex passwords that are hard for you, for people to guess are also very difficult for people to remember. So they immediately write it down or they don't right. use it or they'll go with something. So it's like a passphrase, but you may have a choice, but definitely you know, changing default usernames on devices and passwords and, and just sort of keeping aware, like awareness. Like I just recently got an Alexa for Christmas, right? So... I have been keeping my eyes out for like security alerts and things, and and um, uh, from an organizational perspective in the government, right? There's a lot of resources where the people do keep track of things like that. So and, and and there's security websites you can hear people talk about what the latest um, thing to be afraid of is, right? <laughs> it's like it's, it's one of those things that it's like you, you hit it right on the head. though, is, you know, where's convenience? You know what what are you? What's what's your risk tolerance? right right and uh and most people aren't going to start throwing their phones in the trash right they're not going throw <laughs> their comp- you're not going do away with their computers and things like that, so you just have to be you know you have to be safe i mean there nothing's a hundred percent but um just using like I said if you practice good cyber hygiene and um obviously you know virus scanning and firewalls that are available for yourself and VPNs, if you you know if you want to go that route if you're doing work from home so that uh, it, that you don't know, Easy, a little more difficult for something to migrate into your work system from home your VPN. You know, getting up in the morning could be dangerous, right? So, I don't want to scare anybody off the computers, but good cyber hygiene and just and a little common sense and awareness and just know what's out there. Perfect. Well,
0: besides the the potential of a of attack uh, on cloud-based servers, is there any other thing out there that you see as an emerging threat?
1: Oh, well, there's, there's a emerging threats. So I there's always we could talk for. Semesters on okay. cyber threats, right, and different aspects of it. You know, but some of the things that, that um, especially on like the presentation I gave yesterday, you know, we're talking about virtual currencies. Obviously, they wouldn't be around if it weren't for computers and cyber. Bitcoin being the big one right now, and most people, most people who are involved in Bitcoin are either involved in it for speculating because it's you know, it, I don't know, about it's it's kind of like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, though, right. the way the price goes up and down. <clears throat> uh, I don't know if I'd be putting my 401k in it right now. Last time I checked, I think in December it hit twenty thousand dollars and then in uh, mid January it hit back down to eight grand. I don't know how many people can absorb that kind of like up right. and down. But um, it's not just uh, people speculating. The majority use of actual use other than the speculation is for criminal purposes. Now Bitcoin's changing a little bit of that cause you've got some some fair you know, large Microsoft, some other, you know, uh, Online uh, vendors, which are taking Bitcoin payment, but even they could not tolerate the the up and down right. the, the wide swings in the price and like I believe Microsoft actually stopped taking Bitcoin for payment for a while because it was just too crazy the way the the price was fluctuating, and they could the system couldn 't handle it but traditionally i 've seen most of the virtual currencies were used for payment systems for um, illegal items, right and this is going back twenty years predating. What most people knew is the dark web is today, but it's a it's a primary payment system. On, people talk about the dark web, you know, the 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 invisible internet, the, the parts of the internet which aren't aren't. Uh, uh, it's not that they're not even indexed by search engines. You need special programs just to get on it. You have to use Tor, which means the onion router. You have to use software to be able to get on that. But once you're on there, it's basically you know that's what they call the dark web. Mm-hmm. And there are and it, originally it was for communicate. It was it was a kind of a proxy server system for people to be able to go to websites without being tracked, which came in handy for people who were like trying to access uh, forbidden websites from behind the iron curtain or in a communist country. Uh, But what's happened is that Criminals always migrate to things, right? So they migrated to the dark web for not just communicating about things, but for also for setting up um, illegal services and products and websites. So I guess the main one would be like the Silk Road, which I was involved in that investigation, you know, which was taken down in California, in San Francisco, you know, several years ago. Basically, a marketplace for nothing, everything illegal: drugs, All right. guns, you know. Everything. I guess they had the, the only thing they drew the line on was child pornography. On the Silk Road, they wouldn't allow people trading child porn, but if you wanted to trade fentanyl and right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and machine gun conversion kits and things like that, there was there was there was all over that, and a lot of financial stuff stolen, credit cards and, and credit card numbers and things like that. The day, actually I remember the day that we took the Silk Road down and we arrested Dread Pirate Robert, the, the guy that ran it up in San Francisco, that same day it was already supplanted by another one because there was already, they were already out there. Uh, and, uh, so, so now there's dozens, hundreds of, of illegal marketplaces that are selling everything, you know, every kind of illegal item, and they're all, the, the payment choice on the Silk Road and, lot, and for most of these is either Bitcoin or some other type of virtual digital currency, cryptocurrency, however you want to call it. Right? So that's the driving force behind a lot of virtual currencies. My involvement with virtual currency wasn't just for illegal marketplaces, but it was also from the money laundering perspective, people being able to you know, circumvent going through regulated financial institutions to put money in the system, move it around, and the big link between virtual currencies and prepaid cards, right? Gift cards, maybe not necessarily the gift cards you see at the, at the Walgreens, but a lot of them that are for sale online, which are issued by overseas banks and and actually some that are available at the grocery store that you can load with virtual currencies or not maybe not directly but you can actually use your bitcoins to give it to somebody and they'll load the card for you and these things end up being a, an avenue for cross border movement of cash um, terrorist financing, things like that. So, But they're all interconnected because virtual currencies wouldn't exist without the Internet. The dark web would not exist without the Internet, right? And the prepaid card, at least a lot of the aspects of it for the illegality, are directly associated with virtual currencies and the Internet. So those were things that I worked on for years and they are still out there. The, the terrorist attack in Paris on the soccer and, the, and the, uh, all the people that were killed at the restaurants, those terrorists... That use that they um, finance that operation uh, with prepaid cards. The money that they were using, they were using prepaid credit cards that were uh, loaded up by other by people that could have been here in the United States, could have loaded money on the for them. So it's a way of, of circumventing the traditional financial system to uh, support. Terrorist at type acts. Well, absolutely. You can, yeah. uh, I mean, perfect example is if I want to, if I want to, if you're a terrorist over in Afghanistan and uh, I want to give you money, I'm, can I wire it to you? You're, you know, if I wire it to you, the banks are going to see, okay, where is it going? Um, who's it going to? Uh, if you're on a terrorist list or you're on a list of uh, OFAC sanctioned countries or banks or or, or people, individuals, uh, they're going to block that. They're not going to send that money. But if you have a prepaid card which is loadable with Bitcoin. Right. here in Afghanistan. Then I can go. and It's like on the Visa MasterCard uh, right. system. I can go into a uh, Starbucks and meet somebody, you know, exchange who's going to sell me bitcoins. I could buy a thousand dollars in bitcoins and then use that bitcoins that I bought from that with cash here in the United States loaded onto your credit card over there in Afghanistan. And now you have access to those funds. Wow. Any way anyone could uh, bypass the system, of finding the loopholes. Well, that's what I tell, tell my uh, investigators when I was working, and and when I teach class to investigators. I said, you gotta understand. I said, criminals. This is their job. Right they don't have, it's not like they're working somewhere else and they got to like, when we're working on our thesis, right? Trying to to work in that time when I can Mm -hmm. figure out what the next hack is. Their job is when they, from the the moment they get up in the morning until they go to bed at night is to figure out ways to beat us. Right. Right. And be criminals. Right. So it's, it's something that, um, we're making, I think we can't avoid it, but we can try to make it a little bit more difficult for them. Like nothing, you're never going to stop 100 percent of everything, right? But we don't have to make it so easy that somebody can go into a star can use a Starbucks gift card to buy bitcoins, which could end up being used to fund a prepaid debit card for somebody and a terrorist in another country to launch an attack.
0: Yeah. Okay. I <laughs> that's um, the complexity uh, that they put into their uh, efforts is is I'd have to say almost commendable. I mean, they do really good job of trying to make sure what their mission is is getting accomplished, but then on on our side of countering that, uh, we have to try to be as creative as they are, and I guess that's what your task force has always done, is you guys try to think the way a terrorist would think, or did you approach it from what is a possible direction that somebody may go about? Are you trying, are you doing red teaming type uh, teams for or red teaming A little teaming bit of guys? both.
1: Obviously you have the, you have the cases, you know, where people call you up and this is going on or something, or like when I talked about, you know, some of the traditional threats, okay, those have been around for a long time. We know about that, you know. I had actually ran two task forces. I had a I had a, a a traditional border security task force, which we were looking at bulk currency smuggling and and guns running down to Mexico and things like that. I also had a joint DHS cybercrime task force, where we're looking at the virtual side of things. And what we saw was we saw that a lot of these same threats were sort of like merging. There was a merger of physical and cyber. Perfect example, like I said, was the prepaid cars. Mm-hmm. We would uh, most people don't think about bulk currency smuggling. That's the, the traditional way that most uh, you know drug money from for the Mexican cartels got from the United States back. People would literally take and and take large amounts of currency, which is usually the in the trade of drug trafficking, you have large currency, and actually put it in hidden compartments in cars and things like that, and then drive it down to the border and sneak it across. A lot of your highway interdiction people, that's what they do. They're looking for money in cars. We, we started seeing in, in car traffic stops that people were in the voids of these, in these secret apartments. They were actually hauling cards now instead of cash. And Think about it. I can, people don't think about this. It's difficult. Sometimes it's more difficult to move the cash than it is to move the drugs. The money that they make weighs more than the drugs. People don't realize this, that um, a, hundred, a million dollars in $20 bills weighs over a hundred pounds. So it, it actually weighs more than the drugs, right? So if you can convert that to, uh, let's say, prepaid cards, some prepaid cards we've seen over the internet that you can buy, or even just ones off the, the shelf at the, at the store, uh, you can put $500 in cash on a gift card at point of sale, right? right. Um, and if you can reload them even more, it, it's better. But you can, so you're eliminating just the weight, right? You can, now instead of being 100 pounds and twenty dollars bills, now you can get it down to maybe say, you know, 15 pounds of cards, it's easier to hide that, right? I mean, so so we were looking at, uh, when you get back to said, you know, we were looking at at traditional stuff and we were looking for emerging stuff. And my philosophy was always that, and I learned from this program, right, when I was in it in uh, in 07, is that, you know, one of the criticisms after 9-11 was that we just lacked the imagination of the bad guys. So when I would tell my investigators, I said, we got to be as imaginative as them. And I always thought the Cyber was always a good area for us to do that, because a lot of times the bad guys don't invent stuff. They, there's one guy, maybe one smart hacker that invents something, and then other hackers just use it, right? So if we can be on that level, finding out about an exploit or finding out about a methodology that bad guys are using, at the same time that the, uh, the uh, mainstream bad guys are finding out about it, right, we can meet that threat at the time, Rather than responding to something two or three years later, right? So I try to, I was always saying, you know, use our imagination, look at the, you know, try to look and think like a bad guy. I, said, I might have said that yesterday, and I, I have always told my guys, you gotta think what they're gonna do. If law enforcement is doing this, right, what's our way around that? And then we need to look, okay, if I'm a bad guy and, and I know this is what we do, how am I gonna get around it? And a lot of times, more times than not, when we actually looked at that pathway, we found bad guys. We found bad guys that were probing it. You know, we're always going to be a little bit behind, you know, because law enforcement is always reactionary at some point. Like I said, I think I told somebody one time, that I, I don't know how many cyber crimes I've prevented, because we were looking at something and we were able to plug a hole before it actually happened. When I wrote my thesis, I was saying, you know, back in '07 and '06, is that terrorists are going to use prepaid cards. As a methodology, because they can use virtual currencies and the internet, and they can get around—you know—how they would normally move money through the traditional financial system. I hate being correct. I hate being the one who called it. But after the terrorist attack in Paris that killed so many people, and we find out that those guys were using prepaid cards, there's no excuse for that. I, if if we and I, I wrote at the time when because the, a lot of the argument from the financial, you know, the the, the credit card companies, who are basically in the banks that are behind prepaid cards, was that you know there isn't a threat there. We haven't seen an attack yet. They're not using it for money. Not, the terrorists aren't using these cards. And I said, well, why do we have to wait until we get hit before we patch a hole that we know the bad guys? We're leaving this big gaping hole open for them to get around what measures we had in place at the time. There's still big holes in the system. Some of these holes are being plugged, but there's still. I said, somebody, I, I said one time, some of these holes are big enough to drive a, an aircraft through. Right. And it's still out there. It's still vulnerability. Right now the vulnerability is for everything. It's I think it's a matter of fact, I think the vulnerability when it comes to prepaid and virtual currencies for homeland security interests is probably more now than it's ever been. Because the dark web is bigger than it's ever been. It gives people access to like I said, machine gun conversion kits and all sorts of drugs and weapons and, and things like that that they can order over the internet where that stuff was always available, but now it is like really out there available. Before it's it, the dark web has made it much easier for people to shop and look for that stuff. And the virtual currencies and the anonymity which is built inherently, Bitcoin is anonymous, but it's it's really not. You can you can do some analysis, you can make it really anonymous with tools that they can use, but you can actually do analysis on the blockchain. Which will, if depending on you know how good you are and things, it's not one hundred percent. You can track stuff in the blockchain. You can actually track a purchase to a purchaser using Bitcoin in some cases, right? There are virtual currencies out there that use different algorithms than Bitcoin, which are designed completely for anonymity. That you will never be able to trace it, right? So the the uh, you have an anonymous system like the dark web, right? And you have an anonymous payment system that people can use to buy all sorts of illegal stuff, which can be very dangerous, right? Whether it's um, fentanyl, which can kill people, you know, which is what, 80 times stronger than heroin or machine gun conversion kits or weapons or not just the, but services. People were, I was looking at services on the dark web where people were shipping weapons to people. So if you live someplace that had strong checks and stuff like you couldn't buy one over the counter, you could go on the dark web and buy a weapon and these people would ship it to you. They sold these services. So these things are out there like that. And it's, it's gotten a payment system, which provides anonymity, an internet system, which provides anonymity for people to get you know, dangerous materials and weapons. That's a homeland security issue. Absolutely. And, and so with the access to anonymity, what type of things can we do to actually address that threat? Anonymity is one of the things that people sell. The old joke was that on the Internet, nobody knows your dog, right? You can be anybody. You can put the email address out there and you can say that, you know, I'm a sheik in Arabia, but I'm actually just the unemployed guide in a basement. I don't know. I mean, people like the enemy. The, the onion router, the tour system that the um, dark web is on, that was designed for anonymity. And there's good things about anonymity, right? If you if you want to go to a website and find out about some health issue that you have and you don't want necessarily people to know who you are when you're doing it, you know, there's good things about anonymity. You, you want to be able to have your privacy, right? But And that's the debate. There's organizations like the Electronic Freedom Foundation, which has been fighting every regulation that would control some type of like, anonymity on the internet because of that reason. Because, you know, the government's big, they're going to spy on you, and my, my contention would be is we ain't got enough time to spy on you. You're not important <laughs> enough to spy on, but but that this, all joking aside, you know I can see there I can see uh, you know the, the point for people about anonymity, right? Mm-hmm. There's no reason why you need to have like darknet websites, and they're illegal. You know the, the, the privacy people would say well, that's not legal, and, you know they're not going to be advocates for that kind of illegal activity. The underlying privacy, though. Uh, you know, for people that are in China to be able to go out and see, you know, real information that's not like, fil- I'm not picking on China, but, you know, you fill in a country that, that um, filters what they're in and blocks people's access mm-hmm. and stuff, part of that whole tour and the, the dark web, that supports those people being able to, you know, yeah, the, the thing is, you know, the, the onion router, the, the system that the dark web runs on was actually designed and, and developed by the United States Navy. Years ago, and for that reason for people to be able to go out and go to websites without being tracked, who they were and coming back to them. Unfortunately, that method, you know that technology also allows for like the dark web and services in there where people were doing this illegal stuff. The virtual currencies and the, the anonymity, of that just exacerbates it. because before virtual currencies it couldn't be tracked. If somebody went to a dark website where they could put their credit card number, and we can get that, I mean, right. we can track that back. It, it, even then, that might not stop it. The credit card company would, maybe would know you'd have to, and that's why it takes a when I you know maybe to conclude. We we're talking about. I said yesterday when we talked about what you can do about cybersecurity. I, I group cybersecurity is all that. It's not just the threats to your systems, but it's the threat to our society from cyber-enabled crime. Right? You know, your, your, a lot of cybersecurity, is it looks at the, the, the information systems and in your data is like victims, right? When I was a cyber investigator, most of what I looked at was looking at cyber as an enabler for crime, that aspect of cyber, right? But it's all the same. I mean, cyber, somebody breaking your system, that's a crime, right? So that's just another aspect of it. I think I ended yesterday when I was talking about cybersecurity was it takes community, Right? We're all in it together when it comes to cybersecurity, right? Uh, especially on the cybersecurity front when we were talking about infrastructure from the government sector, critical infrastructure, obviously EMS and emergency management, that's part of government. But so much critical infrastructure is private sector. It's financial sectors. It's the power companies. It's the water companies. These aren't, most of the time, these aren't owned by the government. These are private entities that may be quasi-government, but they're, but they're private entities, right? When you talk about cybersecurity, we're teaching cyber threats. We bring in people from infrastructure. You have to, because if the power grid goes down, it's going to impact everybody, but they're not part of the government, right? right? So you bring these people in there and and we work a partnership on what we can do together. When it comes to cyber crime and cyber threats, like from the, the Homeland Security perspective, it's the same thing. You know, when we were working these crimes originally back in the day with the, for currencies and prepaid cards, we brought in the financial sector, the people that run these systems and try to make a partnership, right? So when you have these partnerships between, and even people like the, the Freedom Foundation, people that are big, strong privacy advocates, they're part of the community, too, because they're, they're potential victims of everything that happens, right? So when I said in cybersecurity, it takes community, it takes everybody together working, right? It takes, because we can't, we don't own the Internet. The government doesn't own it. Nobody owns it, but it's operated by private industry. And a lot of the stuff that's going on with, with the, the bad stuff is going on impacts, in, in like financial sectors and things like that. We're all in the same boat together, Right, and we got to row together, right? And and uh, that's the way that we're going to end up really addressing this thing, right? Is you is you're going to have to get reach consensus. You know, the, obviously from the privacy re- perspective, you know, you're always going to have to have some acceptance of risk of how much you know what we're allow, what we're going what we're allowing to happen for the privacy that we want. But you see how that changes. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, how many people thought they were going to be going through a modified strip search to get on an airplane, right? (laughs) And I hope that never happens in the cyber side of things. But, you know, it takes a community. It takes all of us together. It takes Homeland Security uh, folks. It takes government folks. It takes private sector folks. It takes everybody working together to come up with solutions to this stuff. Because it's all interrelated and nobody has all the keys, but together, we have most of the keys. If we can work together, we can solve a lot of these things. 100% never. Nothing's going to be 100%. But we can certainly do better than I think that we're doing now. I'm just blown away. <laughs> Quite
0: it's amazing how it's all interconnected uh, when it comes to finances to, well, let's even back it up a little bit before that. A device that is supposed to be used for good to give access to people who don't have access is taken over by people who are looking to do bad and selling weapons or drugs or or whatever. So thank you for enlightening me. I'm sure this is enlightening a lot of people that are listening and uh, yeah, thank you.
1: Oh, you're very welcome.
0: So there you have it, Mr. Philip Osborne. What I found interesting in this interview were the simple steps you can take to improve your online security. Whether it's addressing usernames and passwords, minimizing access into your virtual profile, or understanding phishing and ransomware. Another thought-provoking topic is the use of virtual currencies and prepaid cards, funding and supporting terrorist activities. I hope you got out of this episode as much as I did. Oh, and one last item. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous, we ask that you share our show with your friends and peers. Also, subscribe. This way, each time we release an episode, it will be ready for you on iTunes, CastBox, or whichever platform you use. And with that, I'm Frank Foreman, your host, and until our next episode, take care.